Chapter 21 Young Folks' History of the American Revolution. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Colonel Gary Bohannon. GaryBohannon.com. Young Folks' History of the American Revolution by Everett Tomlinson. In the Mohawk Valley. Meanwhile, before we follow the further fortunes of Burgoyne, it will be necessary for us to turn our attention to some of the exciting experiences of the desperate patriots in the Mohawk Valley. Colonel Barry St. Ledger, with his force of redcoats, had departed from Montreal, and after passing up the St. Lawrence River, and with few thoughts we may be sure of the beauties of the Thousand Islands as his fleet of bateaux, skiffs, and canoes passed them, had arrived at Oswego. The number of his followers had been greatly increased by the arrival of the Indians under the command of Brant, or Thyendanegae, as he was commonly called among the Mohawks, and Sir John Johnson, with a band of Johnson's Royal Greens, as the Tories who had left the Mohawk Valley and gone to Canada were known. Brant was probably the most intelligent Indian of that day in the New World. He was a chief, and the son of a chief who rejoiced in the unpronounceable name of Teowagwengeregquin, and had been educated at Dr. Wheelock's school, which afterward became Dartmouth College. He was a bitter foe of the Americans, believing as he did that by siding with the British in the struggle, he would most effectually aid his own people in retaining their homes and hunting grounds. Sir John Johnson was the son of Sir William Johnson, one of the largest landowners and most intense Tories in all the region. He had been active ever since the war had broken out, and now believed that the time had come when he could strike most heavily for King George upon the scattered and obstinate Whigs of the valley, who had steadily refused to listen to his calls. When St. Ledger arrived at Oswego, he had altogether a force of 1,700 men, and in early August he left the fort, and advancing by way of Oneida Lake, moved upon Fort Stanwix, or Fort Schuyler as it was called, which stood where now is the city of Rome, New York. In command of this fort was a young colonel, Peter Gansevoort, one of the most sterling of the American soldiers, and with him was a little garrison of a few hundred men to attempt to hold the fort and withstand the greater force of St. Ledger. Colonel Gansevoort had been busy trying to strengthen his post, which after all was but a rude and feeble affair, and when a captured spy and the runners of the friendly Oneida Indians brought him word of the approach of his enemies, he was really in no condition either to withstand a siege or engage in a battle with St. Ledger's advancing host. The first real knowledge the men of the fort had of the nearness of the Redcoats and the Redskins came one day when two soldiers of the garrison, without the permission of the commanding officer, had gone into the forest to shoot some wild pigeons that were passing in such clouds that it is said at times they even shut out the light of the sun. With them the two men had taken their dog, and this faithful animal had suddenly appeared before two boys who were fishing in Wood Creek and by his frantic leaps and barking induced them to follow him into the woods, where they discovered the men stretched upon the ground, both scalped, one dead and the other apparently just alive. Assistance was speedily obtained from the garrison, but every one now knew who were in the adjacent forests, and what must be expected soon. St. Ledger and his entire force were soon before the feeble walls of the old fort, and while the leader sent a demand for its surrender, he also caused to be distributed throughout the region copies of his remarkable proclamation, 
which, though it promised protection to all who accepted his terms of peace, threatened the direst punishment upon those who still remained obstinate. He was to learn, however, as Burgoyne was already learning, that the hardy Americans were in no mood to be terrified by high-sounding words, or even by the threat of letting loose the terrible Indians upon them. Colonel Gansevoort curtly refused the demand for surrender, though he was in dire straits at the time. His men were few in number, provisions were low, and ammunition was scanty. While worse than any or all of these things was the presence of traitors inside the walls. One of these, Sam Gakey, had been sent by Sir Henry Clinton from Poughkeepsie, and was to obtain all the information he could secure within the fort, and at the same time try to induce the men to rebel against their young colonel, and throw open the gates of the fort rather than be butchered like sheep within a pen from which there was no hope of escape. Colonel Gansevoort had been greatly cheered by the arrival of Colonel Willett with a few reinforcements, but still all told he had only about 750 men with whom he was expected to keep off St. Ledger's force of more than twice that number. But what the young officer lacked in men and means he seemed to have made up in courage, and with a boldness that in part was only apparent, not real, he prepared to resist the siege which began strongly on August 4th. During this time, the militia and the bold Whig farmers of the valley had been assembling at the call of sturdy old General Herkimer. At first, the people of the region had been almost terror-stricken by the reports of the dual invasion of Burgoyne and St. Ledger, but with the proclamations and the actual presence of the enemy, they had rallied, and with about 800 men, General Herkimer set forth from Fort Dayton to march to the aid of the sadly beset garrison behind the walls of Fort Schuyler. His men were bold enough but they knew almost nothing of military science. They had rifles and muskets and plenty of courage, but other additional things were to be required before a victory could be won, as they soon learned to their sorrow. The plan was to move up near the fort, and when Colonel Gansevoort should be informed of their coming, by the scouts Herkimer sent ahead, then the garrison was to attack at the same time when Herkimer's men moved forward, and under the confusion, which it was believed the combined attacks would produce, then the men could at least make their way into the fort to the aid of their friends, if they could do nothing more. Accordingly, Herkimer halted a few miles from the fort, and sent forward his scouts, but the latter were delayed when they found the investing army larger and closer than they had expected, and the slow hours passed, and still the signal guns of Fort Schuyler were not heard. The restless soldiers became impatient, and demanded that Herkimer should lead them forward, whether the guns were heard or not. For a time the wise old officer, he declared he was like their father and would not lead his children into needless peril, was able to stave off the demand. Then the men became angry and declared that their general was afraid, and at last, stung to the quick, he gave the desired command, and the terrible march was begun. Of course the Indians had learned of Herkimer's approach, and under the direction of Brant they and the Royal Greens had concealed themselves in a long line along the sides of a narrow ravine near Oriskany. Without a thought of their peril, the careless patriots marched on to the narrow log causeway that crossed the ravine, and in a moment the yells of the Indians and the rifles of the hidden Greens sounded together. Some of the startled, terrified Whigs turned and fled, and did not stop running before they had gained the shelter of the little fort where Utica now stands but the most of them speedily recovered their wits, and then began the most bloody and terrible fight of all the war of the Revolution. Face to face and arm to arm the men fought, 
neighbor fought against neighbor guns were discharged then clubbed and knives and fists were used until the struggling shrieking mass of men seemed almost like a band of contending demons general herkimer had been shot in the thigh but the brave old man seated himself on the ground and lighting his pipe and with his back against a tree still gave forth his orders the patriots soon formed themselves into little circles and almost back to back fought the oncoming foe the couriers by this time had arrived at the fort and their words as well as the sounds of the distant guns at once informed gansevoort of what was going on quickly he sent colonel willett with a force to fall upon part of the nearby tory camp a terrific thunder shower so severe that even the men fighting at oriskany were compelled to pause in their struggle kept him back but as soon as the torrent ceased willett advanced and fell furiously upon the enemy's camp so furious was his charge that the tories and indians there broke and fled and twenty-one wagon loads of spoils as well as the papers of sir john johnson and five british standards fell into the hands of willett who hastened back to fort schuyler without the loss of a man no cause for wonder is it that for his gallant deed congress afterward presented him with a beautiful sword the sounds of willett's attack had been heard by the tories and indians at oriskany and instantly they knew what they meant the americans also knew and were fighting with renewed desperation soon the indians broke and fled and their weird cry of defeat una una resounded through the forest neither side had won for though the americans held the field they had not been able to advance to the relief of fort schuyler they had lost two hundred men among whom was general herkimer for a few days afterward the old soldier died of his wound colonel gansevoort was still holding his fort however though against terrible odds he could not even have heard what the result of the battle of oriskany had been though he had a terrible fear that it had not been won since his friends did not come to his aid the very next morning st ledger striving to take advantage of the ignorance of the men in the fort sent a letter demanding its surrender and also declared that not only had oriskany been won but also that burgoyne at that very time had possession of albany of course gansevoort did not know how true the claim might be but he had no thought of surrendering and colonel willett face to face with the messenger in the presence of colonel gansevoort in his anger said quote, do i understand you sir i think you say that you come from a british colonel who is commander of the army that invests this fort and by your uniform you appear to be an officer in the british service you have made a long speech on the occasion of your visit which stripped of all its superfluities amounts to this that you come from a british colonel to the commandant of this garrison to tell him that if he does not deliver up the garrison into the hands of your colonel he will send his indians to murder our women and children you will please to reflect sir that their blood will be upon your heads not upon ours we are doing our duty this garrison is committed to our charge and we will take care of it after you get out of it you may turn around and look at its outside but never expect to come in again unless you come a prisoner i consider the message you have brought a degrading one for a british officer to send and by no means reputable for a british officer to carry for my own part i declare before i would consent to deliver this garrison to such a murdering set as your army by your own accounts consists of i would suffer my body to be filled with splinters and set on fire as you know at times has been practiced by such hordes of women and children killers as belong to your army Unquote. perhaps it is needless to state that fort schuyler was not surrendered 
Indeed, it was then that for the first time the new American flag of the Stars and Stripes was unfurled, for making a flag of strips of their white shirts, strips of scarlet flannel forming the red, and the blue of a cloak which one of the captains in the fort, Captain Abraham Swartout, had previously captured from a British officer forming the ground, a rude but true flag soon defiantly floated from the walls. We shall have more to say of the flag of our country, but the action of the men at Fort Schuyler in August, 1777, is worthy of mention here. So the siege was renewed, and the desperate defenders did not surrender, for they did not know how. Food was very scarce, ammunition was almost gone, and messengers had been sent to General Schuyler piteously begging for aid. For days the siege continued, and then suddenly and unexpectedly the enemy fled, leaving their very tents standing and their guns in the trenches. It was August 22, 1777. For a moment the brave young colonel knew not what to make of it, but soon he learned the true state of affairs and was quick to act. It seems that General Schuyler, although his own force was too small, with enemies in his ranks worse than the foe before him, was nevertheless desirous of sending aid to brave Colonel Gansevoort. When, however, he suggested such a plan, his own followers called him a traitor and declared he was trying to weaken his own army so that Burgoyne might the more easily conquer it. Calmly Philip Schuyler bore the abuse and insults, and then inquired which brigadier would lead a division to the aid of Fort Schuyler. Not one responded until Benedict Arnold impulsively declared that he would go, and go he did. Swiftly his men advanced up the Mohawk Valley, meeting Colonel Willett and a companion officer on the way, whom Gansevoort had at last sent with a final despairing appeal for aid, fearful every hour that news would be received that the fort had fallen. At last they arrived at Fort Dayton, and what occurs there is thus related in the Annals of Oneida County by Pomeroy Jones. Quote, Arnold received information that there was to be a gathering of Tories at Shoemakers, one of the king's justices of the peace, on the south side of the Mohawk, a few miles above, and Colonel Willett, who was at the time at Fort Dayton, was dispatched with a competent force to arrest them. Colonel Willett and his party arrived and surrounded Shoemakers in the night time, and made prisoners of the whole party, some twenty in number, and they were soon lodged in Fort Dayton. Among the number was Hanyost Schuyler, one of the coarsest and most ignorant specimens of humanity to be found in the valley, and yet a large share of shrewdness and low cunning was interwoven in his character. He had been so notorious as a spy that a drumhead court-martial, which was called the next day for his trial, had no difficulty in pronouncing him guilty, and he was sentenced to be hanged on the following morning. The mother and brother of Hanyost resided at Little Falls, and, after having heard of his capture and sentence, lost no time in applying to Arnold to spare his life. The general was, however, inexorable. Major Brooks of Learned's Brigade, perceiving the posture of affairs and believing that some capital might be made out of the spy, went to General Arnold and stated his scheme to him. General Arnold, warmed by the fate of General Herkimer and fearing his force insufficient to raise the siege, the more readily agreed to resort to stratagem. The plan concocted was this. Hanyost was to be suffered to escape from the guardhouse, and his life spared, on condition that he should repair to the Indian and Tory camps in the vicinity of Fort Stanwix, and by an exaggerated account of Arnold's force induce them to desert their leader in sufficient numbers 
to cause St. Ledger to raise the siege. If he failed, his brother, who consented to remain in Arnold's camp as a hostage, was to grace the same noose which had been prepared for Hanyost. All having been arranged, Arnold and Brooks went out, and related the particulars of the plan in the presence and hearing of the sentinel at the door of the guardhouse. And after they were through, Arnold, with a significant look, asked the sentinel if he knew his duty, to which the latter gave an affirmative reply. After dark, Hanyost made his escape from the guardhouse, the sentinel being cautious not to fire the alarm until the double traitor had time to get beyond the reach of pursuit. Then the alarm was given. The guard turned out in the pursuit, but without avail. All who were not in the secret regretted that such an errant villain should have escaped the just doom that awaited him. The life of his brother for this once caused Hanyost to be true to his country, and he fulfilled his contract to the letter. An Oneida Indian had also been let into the secret, who cheerfully embarked in the enterprise. Hanyost, who was acquainted with many of St. Ledger's Indians, upon his arrival in their camp told a most piteous story of his having been taken by the rebels, and of his escape from being hanged, and also showed them several holes through his coat, made by bullets which, he said, were fired at him when he made his escape. Well acquainted with Indian character, he communicated his intelligence to them in a mysterious and imposing manner. When asked as to the number of men with Arnold, he shook his head and pointed upward to the leaves of the trees, and upon being further questioned, he said the number of Arnold's men could not be less than ten thousand. This news soon spread through the camps. At this juncture, the Oneida Indian arrived and confirmed Hanyost's statement. On his way, he had fallen in with two or three Oneida Indians of his acquaintance, who readily engaged in furthering his design, and these, dropping into the camp one after another, as if by accident, spoke of the great number of warriors marching against them. They also stated that the Americans did not wish to injure the Indians, but if they continued with the British, they must all share one common fate. By these means, alarm and consternation were thoroughly spread among the whole body of Indians, and they resolved upon immediate flight. St. Ledger did all in his power to prevent their leaving at this critical juncture, but in vain. As a last resort, he tried to get them drunk, but the dram bottle had lost all its charms, and they refused to drink. After he had failed in every attempt, he tried to persuade them to fall into the rear and form a covering party to his army, and they charged him with a design of sacrificing his red allies to the safety of the whites. In a mixture of rage and despair, St. Ledger immediately ordered the siege to be raised, and with his entire force of regulars, Tories and Indians, he withdrew in such haste as to leave his tents standing, abandoning all his artillery, and some accounts state that they left their dinners cooking over the campfires. The Oneida Indian, it seems, had a spice of wag in his composition, for he followed in the rear and occasionally raised the cry, They are coming! They are coming! for his own diversion in seeing the Redcoats take a foot race. And the retreating army never felt entirely safe until fairly embarked on the Oneida Lake. Hanyost kept with St. Ledger's army on the retreat, until it arrived at the mouth of Wood Creek, when he returned to Fort Stanwix and gave Colonel Gansevoort the first intelligence of the approach of General Arnold's command. From thence he returned to Fort Dayton, and having fulfilled, on his part, every part and parcel of the contract, his brother was at once discharged. His principles had, however, undergone no change. He was still a Tory, and, Balaam-like, soon after rejoined the British standard, attaching himself to the forces of Sir John Johnson. After the peace of 1783, Hanyost came back and resided in the Valley of the Mohawk, 
He was well known by some of the first settlers in Westmoreland, and was represented by them as a low, coarse, and apparently very stupid being. Unquote. So Fort Schuyler was saved by the stratagem, and Gansevoort and his brave men were safe. Arnold and his followers hastened back to join Schuyler's army, which now was no longer Schuyler's, for Congress stupidly had listened to the bitter words spoken against the noble man, and now the petty little dandy Gates was in command of the northern army, which was soon to face new problems and new perils. Six days after the flight of Barry St. Ledger, word of his failure was brought to Burgoyne, and once more the pompous general was to learn that Britons do indeed sometimes retreat. End of chapter 21